Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast, which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated real estate problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of real estate business and law. I'm your host, Phil Coover. I'm a member with Clark Hill in the Real Estate Group, and I'm an attorney that handles commercial real estate uh, of all matters. Today we have John Malonis of CBRE. John is the Senior Vice President and Senior CBRE's Tenant Representation Group in Chicago. He focuses his practice on developing comprehensive and strategic real estate plans for office leases and assisting with the renewal, relocation, sublease, and buyout of lease properties. During his career, John has completed over 250 transactions on behalf of Chicago-based organizations as well as national and global organizations such as Willis Towers Watson, PwC, McGraw-Hill Companies, Morningstar, Hewlett-Packard, Prudential, and Society General. John's team has transacted across a variety of industries. What I brought John on to talk about today, he's a very dynamic, interesting character and broker, and he wrote a book called Kicking Off Your Office Lease, Six Proven Steps to Develop a Thorough Strategy and Avoid Costly Mistakes. But this podcast isn't just about office leasing. John's approach, and what we'll talk about today, is just what do you want to do with your business? And John, really, he's almost like a strategic business coach, not a broker for your office needs, because he helps you think about what are what's going to hold you back, what do you want in terms to move your company forward and how can your physical footprint help you get there in terms of your human capital as well as the costs of your office space how to minimize those how to maximize uh, your your company's productivity and i just i found it to be an even more dis- enjoyable and uh, interesting discussion than I anticipated it would be. I knew John was great. I knew he's a dynamic character and I thought that he'd be an excellent speaker, but I was really just blown away by this interview. So I think you'll find that this interview, while it sounds like it's office leasing, is really about a variety of things that you can find applicable to your, your business and your life. CBRE uh, is one of the largest real estate companies in the world, if not the largest. They handle pretty much everything. And they're they're a third-party advisor, and they handle brokerage, they handle management, they they really do it all. So to have John be able to come on and talk about CBRE, what it's capable of providing, and all of the, the data and information that they're focusing on to help their clients was really beneficial to me, and I think that you'll find it beneficial to you. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out at pcoover at clarkhill.com. That's P-C-O-O-V as in Victor, E-R at clarkhill.com. If you want to be on the podcast, if you have ideas for topics, I'm always willing to to listen and discuss uh, with, with friends of the podcast. Enjoy the interview. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I am your host, Phil Coover of Clark Hill. Today we have John Milanis of CBRE. John, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. John, you are a tenants rep broker in the office space. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your group at CBRE. Great. Well, thanks uh, again for having me. So CBRE, um, if you're not familiar, is the world's largest commercial real estate firm. And our focus is really in helping occupiers of real estate think through how to align their business strategy with their real estate. And so the simplest way to think about it is it's my job to identify the needs and challenges of an organization and then marry that up to an office space. So we'll help them from the very beginning of developing the strategy all the way through helping to put the team together so they can get moved in and make sure that their phones and internet are working when their employees move in on day one. Um, We work really across all industries and across uh, all global geographies. Um, Many times our clients in Chicago um, will have one, two, five, hundreds of offices. And so in that case, they'll look to us to really manage their properties um, and uh, put together their strategy. So that's sort of my niche. CBRE as a whole um, offers 
any real estate service under the sun that an owner or an occupier could ever need. Everything from property management to facility management to debt and equity finance to selling properties. About 20 years ago, the firm wanted to be the global preeminent commercial real estate firm, which means we have to have experts in every market who have expertise in every product type. Not too dissimilar from how a law firm might be structured where you really want to be serving every niche of the market. And underneath that larger umbrella, my team in Chicago has a specific focus with occupiers within office space. That's, uh, that's quite the goal. It's an ambitious goal. <laughs> it was an ambitious goal, and, and the, the way that they did it was through a lot of acquisitions. Yeah, right. Right, And yeah. so if you can imagine if, uh, if uh, some of the largest uh, global clients in any industry would have needs in many different countries, and it could be different product types, it could be office, industrial, retail, they could have many, many different needs. And um, traditionally, uh, real estate was a very local business. And so you might have many, many different affiliate brokerage firms who were supporting that. And CBRE saw that as their clients were going global, that they needed to be global in order to support that and have it under one roof as opposed to uh, as opposed to just an affiliate structure. So they were really the first firm to go on an absolute buying spree to strategically set up that platform. And uh, it was the right move. And now CBRE still sits as the world's largest commercial real estate firm. And we've seen um, our other uh, competitors follow the similar model, which is really global within every service line. Yeah, we won't mention those today. We don't need to talk about those. No. <laughs> but uh, but I want to. You just mentioned that there could be one, five, a hundred, hundreds of leases yeah. or, or spaces. Um, Let's talk about just the word occupier. I'm just yeah. curious how you define that. Because remember when I first heard that term, it's probably eight, 10 years ago, I remember looking at like, what is an occupier? Sure. It's kind of an odd word. Um, but to me, it, it indicates somebody who's not just in one space, somebody who needs a strategic mind or minds group to look at how does their real estate uh, needs fit their business in, in more than one location, and yeah. locations all over the place. Yeah, and it's a really great question. Um, so, so to me, um, occupier in the simplest sense is someone who who is occupying space that um, they could own, but more typically is owned by someone else, by an owner, right? And throughout the life cycle of occupying a space, there are various needs that they could have, right? So, the simplest need could be. Uh, what building should I be in, right? And so developing the strategy and where that should be, and there's all sorts of analytics that go into how much space, what type of space, uh, what type of employees are trying to recruit or retain, where it should be, et cetera. Um, Once you identify a building, then there's a process of designing it and building it. And so we have a group at CBRE, our project management group, that will put together the team of general contractors and architects and furniture vendors and manage that process of building. Once you're in the space, then there's everything that goes along with with uh, managing the facility well. And so for large corporate clients, they will outsource all of those services to CBRE, where within someone's office space, there will be a CBRE employee, not holding a CBRE card, but holding the card of the client, who will be managing all of the office services and the facilities, right? And along the way, there might be renovations. And so really, when we think about the life cycle of an occupier from um, from envisioning who the company wants to be and what the office leasing strategy is through the move, through living through the space, and then 5, 10, 15 years later, they may need to do it again, right? Mm-hmm. And so that we see that at a single office level and at what we call sort of a, a multi-market level. Um, at that point, it's far more than just a single location, right? It's, it's how is the overall portfolio being managed in order to optimize real estate to then support the business. And at that point, we're really getting into some, some, some fun questions. For example, if a client needs to hire 500 people, where should they go? And so we have a group, our labor analytics group, that will be able to understand the needs of a particular employer, who they want to hire, the level of expertise, the years of experience, and they'll go out and they'll study national or global labor markets. And uh, almost like a funnel, they'll be able to narrow down to say, based on your needs, here's where you could hire 500 people. Here are the benefits, here are the challenges. Here are cities or municipalities that might be able to give tax incentives. 
in this market, it might be overly saturated or this market might be young, but it can grow and mature. So when we're looking at national and global portfolios, uh, really what drives it is not the real estate cost, it's the labor, right? You yeah, look at any organization, right. their number one cost uh, is their people and it's their number one asset, right? It's their people. Even technology companies, there's a value in the platform, but the real value is the people and the relationships. And so um, as our firm has grown and as we've, as we've had to respond to the needs of our clients, specifically on a national and global level, the data around labor and then connecting that into real estate has really been the tip of the spear because that's what drives it. Uh, whether someone is being paid 50 cents more or less, if you're hiring thousands of people, that's going to move the needle more than is the rental rate $15 a foot or $14.50 a foot. Interesting. So you might say, all right, we need to get some, we're building a lab and we need some engineering folks. Mm -hmm. Chicago's a good spot. We have Purdue, Illinois, Michigan, all these places around it. Or you might say, Chicago's too expensive. Why don't you go to Austin? You have all the Texas schools. Or I don't know what it actually, the numbers bear out to, but I imagine that's kind of the discussion. That's, that's exactly the discussion. So we'll look at what are all the variables, and then we'll score different cities around the country, around the globe. And then what we'll be left with, right, based on how you slice and dice the data, is a short list of cities that could potentially serve the need. A lot of it is around education. A lot of it is around population growth. A lot of it is around uh, what's going on at a municipal, municipal level with, with different politics, right? And where we see certain municipalities more open to growth within a certain industry versus others. Um, it's a lot of fun, really. And so within CBRE, this, this particular labor analytics group, they've developed a proprietary database which is unmatched in the industry that really is bringing um, labor data. Although we're a real estate company, it's labor data, but we're bringing that to bear so that companies can help make these decisions. And so you'd almost think that this data would be provided by, um, by a recruiting company, right? But we've had to develop this expertise in-house because we realized that the first question is labor. The second question is where and how of your real estate. It's not the tail wagging the dog. If you start with the real estate, then you're really not understanding the business objectives and you'll just be chasing your tail. That's uh, super interesting. Are there any cities right now that you just feel like, I, I imagine each business has different needs, especially different types of labor, but are there any yeah. cities right now you're just seeing it pop up as in the top three consistently? It's a great question. You know, a lot of it depends on the type of employee that our client is looking for, certainly, right? Um, we were just with a client last week who was talking about um, a call center in Orlando. There's a lot of really, really great uh, experience and depth of expertise in the Orlando market. And the Orlando market has done a good job of attracting those types of jobs and bringing companies from all over the country, right? Um, some cities are just absolutely on fire now from sort of a corporate headquarters relocation perspective. Chicago has benefited from that, right? When you look at Chicago across the national landscape and you look at labor costs and real estate costs of Chicago versus a San Francisco or a DC or a New York, the cost for employees is much less here. The cost of living is much less here and the cost of real estate is much less here, which is one reason why we've seen a lot of thinking specifically of technology, because we do a lot of work with technology clients, a lot of the major technology companies really double, triple, and quadruple down in Chicago. What we're hearing from our clients, specifically those who, who are headquartered in Silicon Valley and around San Francisco, is that um, is that the, the uh, quality of employees they're able to find um, at, at a cost uh, as compared to other markets in Chicago right now is really, really difficult to find elsewhere. Because a lot of labor, it's not just the cost, but it's the depth of the labor. So you mentioned you know, universities, right? A place like Chicago can attract from so many different universities around the Midwest, that's a real benefit. Mm -hmm. You look to the South, we're seeing a lot of activity in cities like Austin. I mean, it is, Austin is, is on fire right now. And uh, in a very short amount of time, it's gone from being a city that maybe there was less of a focus on. Um, folks might've gone down there for concerts or South by Southwest, but now we're seeing a lot, a lot of growth to the point where um, the downtown market is so saturated. We're seeing some people go, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to find the space I need in Austin right now, 
right? Yeah. So it's a lot of fun to watch it. Um, it's not my specific expertise. Um, I'll bring in my partners who are doing that every day. But at any given time, I'm working on several projects where that is a part of their search. And um, and it, it really is a reminder that the business strategy needs to be number one. And um, when we start there uh, and we get the right process in place, then as the process unfolds, you, you end up finding the right solution. Well, let's talk about uh, your expertise and your bread and butter a little bit. So are you mostly in the Chicago market? Good question. Probably half my business is in the Chicago market yeah. and the other half would be across the country or, or global, but with Chicago-based companies who just have multiple offices and larger portfolios. Well, one word you used uh, near the end of your last answer was uh, the word process. Yeah. And what I love what you've done is you put some of your process into paper, onto paper here, and you've written a book, it's called Kicking Off Your Office Lease, Six Proven Steps to Develop a Thorough Strategy and Avoid Costly Mistakes. And when I picked up the book, I kind of thought, all right, so six questions is probably going to be uh, how much space do I need and uh, where do I want to be, where do my employees want to be? And, and th- all those types of questions are covered, but I, th- I was, it was immediately apparent to me that the six questions are more thoughtful questions than just kind of like the straight, what are the business points of the deal? Like how many yeah. square feet do you want? How much? Right. It's, this, what I like what you've done here is you, you're asking people questions in order to draw out the answers to what's eventually going to be the business points. Where's yeah. it going to be square feet, the price? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, your first question is, what are your deficiency drivers? Tell us a little bit about when, when you sit down with a client. And, the, and one of the reasons why I want to ask is I imagine that most of the people listening to this podcast are in real estate, but they also have office needs. Yeah. And they could be other business lines that have office needs. Maybe their lease is coming up in one year or five years or 10 years. And maybe they've never thought of it from a tenant perspective. And so when, when you sit down with a tenant, um, you know, when you talk about deficiency drivers, what are you referring to? Yeah, great question. Well, that's your question. <laughs> well, <laughs> great question of my question. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the six questions um, really could apply towards uh, towards anything, um, and I say that in in the context of um, when I st- when I studied. Um, uh, a lot of consulting processes, right? Um, a lot of them are not asking tactical questions to start from, right? They're asking the, the big questions. And um, and so the six questions in my book are really meant to walk someone uh, through a process um, using some of the best practices that I've learned from other folks that I've read. So the gentleman um, who endorsed my book on the cover, his name is Dan Sullivan. He's a brilliant entrepreneur who um, started uh, an organization called The Strategic Coach. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the conversations that he has a lot um, with his clients is he talks about uh, DOS, what are the dangers, the opportunities, and the strengths, right, within um, within someone's organization or business. Um, and so I try to apply some of that same thinking to real estate. And so the first question that my clients really need to understand is what are they solving for from both a challenge perspective and then a future outlook, a goal type perspective. So question number one is what are your deficiency drivers? And then we lead into question number two, which is what are your success factors or really your goals? If my client doesn't know what their current issues are, there's no way for me to frame out what a potential new solution could be, right? If my client also only focuses on the challenges and I don't understand really what their goals are, right? In a perfect world, what would it look like? I only get half the picture. And so that's why I'm starting with those two questions. So deficiency drivers to me are what are the ongoing roadblocks within the organization that are ultimately going to make it very challenging for them to have uh, an office environment that supports productivity, that helps recruitment retention, that helps to drive revenue, right? And so the simplest thing could be, we're growing, we don't have too much space and we don't have enough space. Great, that could be a deficiency driver, right? Mm -hmm. Another deficiency driver um, could be, um, we uh, are trying to cut costs and Uh, When we look at our percentage rent versus our revenues, it's way too high. And this is a challenge. If we don't manage this, there's no way for us to become profitable and focus 
our dollars and cents into areas like sales or marketing, right? So it could be more business related or it could be more tactical, like I need to hire three more attorneys and I don't have enough offices, right? So we really start there. And um, I, I joke that there's always professional complainers in any organization. And, and so um, there's lots of ways to draw some of those out. You know, you could do a, a market survey of your employees or your board or executive team. You could uh, ask questions in a focus group, right? And there's always people who are really want to talk about the negative. And so it's pretty easy to get those out. Um, what's more challenging is for me to help my clients, because typically there's not just one decision maker, right? There's an, an, an executive level committee who's coming together. Uh, if it's a, let's say it's a one-off project, right? They're coming together for this one headquarters project. Um, and it, it, it's harder to get their consensus on what are the goals, right? Which is question number two, kind of yeah. what are the success, success factors? If I can get my clients to list out all the challenges, that's a little bit easier to get on, 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 on paper, right? And that could be a long list. But how do I get them to build consensus around what the real goals are of the project? Because, because that really means who do we want to be? And if I can get them to really think to who they want to be, I know how to then align that with their space. If they don't know who they want to be, which by the way, a lot of organizations don't know who they want to be. Rightfully so. I'm asking them to think five, 10 years down the line. I mean, think about how far that is. A fast growth technology company who just got a round of funding that's three years old and they have to think about five or 10 years, how are they going to do that? So question number two around your success factors, I would say is probably the most important and the most challenging. And if we don't get consensus around that early on, um, the project can really go around in circles or or it can be a real bear to build consensus later on. John, you're like a, you're like a business coach. This is like a strategy session. Like I've been in these sessions with other principals of firms uh, where you're talking about uh, where does the business want to be? What do you want to do? Like those are really hard conversations to do to push forward and to flesh it out and to make productive. So uh, I mean, I think it's fantastic that you're forcing people to, not forcing, but you're you're allowing people the space to talk about those sorts of things and see if everyone's on the same page while they're talking about their office lease. Have you ever gotten into a situation, don't mention names, <laughs> where you're trying to get some, some heads of some companies, some principals of some companies to decide where they want to go and it's gone it's gone opposite directions and they've just you know what let's just shut the whole thing down <laughs> you know I, I i've been and you, you joke about using the word force so i wouldn't i wouldn't force someone but sometimes uh it feels like it is a bit forced usually um if there's a difference in opinion on the client side and one is trying to force something on another right um, but yeah, I, I've seen a lot of situations where if there's not alignment on the core goals, then what's the point of even engaging on the project? Here would be an example. Um, let's say that, that um, an organization makes an acquisition and they have uh, two or three locations in a particular market. One of the goals could be consolidating all operations into one office, right? But what happens if within those two or three offices, there's multiple different business groups? Some have adjacencies with others, others don't, right? So the CFO might be looking at it from a, a pure dollars and cents standpoint and say that there are efficiencies by being together, right? Um, some of the business leaders might really just care about the two or three other business groups that they might be close to from a consolidation, but it might not be a huge priority, right? And the CEO or the COO might be focused on the next strategic goal for the business that even if they can save 5% on a consolidation, it's not even, it's not even worth it. They're, they're on to the next thing, right? And so um, oftentimes those are the questions we have to start with because if we don't engage all the right stakeholders in the right way, and there's all sorts of ways to do this, right? But if we don't do it early and in the right way, then we're not defining the problem and the goals. And then once I find five buildings, it could be options, they don't know how to pick because they don't know what the filters are to prioritize it. 
right? So oftentimes we are sort of the, you know, the outside consultant. I think of ourselves as, 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 as consultants with sort of a real estate backbone, right? But we're there to bring consensus to otherwise very difficult things to, to get people aligned on. I think it's great that you're approaching it that way. Um, do you have, have you, like when I hear you talk about it in that manner, it almost re- reminds me of design thinking and sort of some of the approaches that they use in design thinking or like when you have um, a strategist come on to help you with marketing or business development, they try to get people to sit down and think about what they want, where they're going, their vision yeah. and so on and stuff. Is that... Did you learn all this stuff through CBRE growing up or did you have formal training in how to think this way and approach things that way? Or did you learn this on the job? Um, Some I learned on the job and I've benefited from working with really great mentors who've been doing this a long time on really complex projects and you learn something new on every project. Um, I do a lot of reading and so I, I, I probably pulled, you know, some of it from that. Um, I certainly benefited from, you know, mentors, like I mentioned, Dan Sullivan at Strategic Coach and others. Um, when, I, when I thought about writing the book, at first I wrote a big, long outline and had 30 steps of every single step in the real estate process, right? And, uh, and just the outline was 30 pages. And I thought the, the book will be 300. No one's going to read this, right? Because the goal is to empower entrepreneurs and executives who are leading, excuse me, office leasing projects for their companies, some for the first time. It's to empower them and educate them. They're never going to read 300 pages. I would be disempowering them by putting a book in front of them that was 300 pages long. And so I really had to boil down what they need to think about to get the process started. The book is called Kicking Off Your Office Lease. It's not every single step of the process. And so by getting them to think this way and writing the book was helpful for me to help me really think through what is the process that I have been walking people through, right? I got a lot of feedback from my clients, a lot of feedback from coworkers, um, but uh, just kind of putting it down on paper was personally helpful for me because I realized a lot of what we're doing is it's business consulting. In the mm-hmm. same way that, you know, as, as, as a legal advisor, a lot of what you're doing is personal and business consulting, right? Your expertise is in, in then how, how it, it, it plays out in a legal contract, right? But what's the point right. of a legal contract if it's not talking about the right thing? And so that's where we start. Yeah, no, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, let's, let's move on. And the, the reason why I ask this is so with this podcast, I am obviously interested in real estate and learning about real estate, whether it be multifamily or whether it be brokerage or what's hot in real estate. But I'm, right. I'm also always interested in just how people are, uh, how people market themselves. I'm also interested in just how people grow their business and how people approach networking and connecting with other people. I don't mean networking and like the, you gotta get out there and network. I mean like actually connecting with other people and, yeah. and building relationships. So that's why I kind of took that segue. So I was just, I was just interested in how you, you got to uh, to approach problems in that manner, um, but let's keep going. Let's keep, uh, what are your what are your scenarios? Yeah. So third question. So once we understand question number one around challenges and question number two around goals, we start to to see uh, a little bit more of what a potential roadmap could be. And so using uh, the consolidation example, right. One scenario could be keeping all three offices separate. And there's probably different lease terms, some are five years, some are 10 years. There's different ways that you can structure it to try to align it for maybe a future consolidation. So doing nothing is always a scenario, right? The next scenario could be, what if you consolidate everyone into a brand new building? And so we look at all the pros and cons and financial and non-financial implications of that. Another scenario could be, what if you consolidate all three into one of the existing buildings where they already are? And that's a scenario that we play out, right? Um, Based on what we learn about the challenges and goals, um, the hiring plans of the business could really impact what the scenarios are, right? That's why we start with our challenging challenges and goals. If someone needs to double in size and within all three buildings, there's no available space, well, it's pretty clear at that point that we shouldn't try to consolidate everyone into one of those existing buildings. The real estate can't support the goal. So when we're looking at scenarios, we're really um, 
laying out all the possible options. And we'll do that before we even go look at a physical space. At this point, it's still really financial and qualitative analysis about what they could look like on paper. We'll then sit down with the executive team and say, based on what we've heard from you, here are the potential scenarios that when we actually start the process of going and looking at buildings, here are the different scenarios. Does this work for you? Are we going in the right direction, right? Which of these might you think is more likely, which is not as likely? Now that we've mapped them out and we've put pen to paper on the pros and cons and the costs and all the different you know parts of the real estate deal, are there any that you say, you know, last month we thought that might be of interest, but now that we think more about it, we probably wouldn't ever do that. Good. Let's toss that scenario out before we have you spend 12 months, right, of boots on the ground and running through that. Because so much of what we're doing is we are essentially the outsourced arm of our client, but they want us to manage the real estate process and come to them when we need decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone's busy. Everyone can get updates via email. We don't need an hour long meeting to do that, right? But for tough decisions, it helps to have people all in a room and talk through it, right? And so the more work that we can do on the front end that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting to then come to them so that they can make decisions on where they want to focus, it will save them tens, hundreds of hours in the future if we really frame out where are we going. And once we know what the scenarios are, then it really is pretty easy. You just you run the rest of the process, right? Yeah. And within each scenario, you're gonna go and you're gonna test your assumptions and you're gonna get proposals from the owners and you're gonna engage architects and contractors and you're gonna understand really what does, what does that deal look like. And within each scenario, there might be various smaller aspects of it, but big picture, if we frame out the high level scenarios, we can then run our process so that once we get into uh, you know, question number four, five, and six, which deal with who's on your team, what's your timeline, and what's your budget, right? Once we know the scenarios, then we just we just run through the rest of it. And it's actually quite simple because you know we have a very, very sophisticated, detailed you know process at that point that that between what are your scenarios and what is the final building or space or scenario you will pick, all it's doing is just uh, it's just confirming the assumptions we made originally when we framed out the scenarios. Do you ever do it a little bit like the broker and house hunters where you're like, here's the three scenarios and then they show them the first house, which the broker knows is they're obviously not going to pick. But you ever say like, hey, here's your three scenarios. You know one is not what they want, but you might help them to understand what they actually do want. Certainly. Now, <laughs> uh, big fan of house hunters, big fan of, uh, of HGTV. Um, and it's funny you say that because one of my clients, um, <laughs> he... Um, after we after we tour spaces and we narrow them down, he will assign names to them. Like that building is the cookie building because when we arrived, the leasing agent yeah. literally had chocolate chip cookies for us. And that building sort of has a point on the floor plate, so that's the point. You know, so you sort of narrow it that way. Um, but uh, we we purposefully show the bookends high and low, right? For everything, high and low cost high and low floor, right, or view, high and low um, quality of a building, all those different things. Because sometimes to know what you want, you have to see what you don't like, right? Um, yeah, for sure. And, and that that's just sort of all, all part of the process. And oftentimes there will be multiple stakeholders and one will like something and the other one won't like it. So some of what we're doing throughout the process is, is we're building consensus. And so seeing options that might not be perfect, but could potentially work, it, it might not be the final building or space that someone chooses, but when they do find what they like, it will empower them to have the confidence to make that decision and feel really good about it without, without having buyer's remorse. I'll tell you a story, we, we were working with a law firm uh, in Chicago and, um, and they had uh, very specific needs. It was very, very clear what their challenges and goals were. And so um, we, we looked at a few space options for them and one in particular um, just aligned perfectly with what they wanted, right? And we're, you know, I wrote a book on process. We are very process oriented, but sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees if you just focus on process, right? Sometimes you need to just trust your gut and make a recommendation, right? And so we toured several properties. There was one in particular that was perfect. And my client asked me, um, 
uh, if you were me, what would you do? And I said, if I was you, I would go get uh, a lease signed as quickly as humanly possible in that space. And he said, why? And I said, I have very little confidence that a space like that is going to come on the market over the next nine months. He said, what are the chances? I said, based on the last two years, probably five to 10%. It was a 30 second conversation. He said, go get it done. Literally, we close the deal almost as fast as you would buy a house. Like usually nice. our process, yeah. it takes a long time. Yeah. Moving hundreds of people, thousands of people, it takes a long time. He said, go get it done. And so um, your question around you know showing something that they might not like to know what they like, um, it's a very astute question. And, um, and sometimes it, it can be really important to help someone have the confidence to make a decision. Well, I watch a lot of house owners. <laughs> I, Island Hunters is my favorite. Oh yeah, that, that one's good. I, <laughs> I, I dream about buying an Islander right away one day. I, well, I always look at those things and I'm like, that island costs 1.5 million. You can get a house in Roscoe Village for 1.5 million. Why am I not? <laughs> exactly. Why are people not looking at uh, buying islands? And then that raised the question of yeah, why? Why do we live through Chicago winters? And <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, right. Yeah. we digress. So, um, who is on your team? And we'll, we'll we'll go through the other ones a little bit faster. I'm not trying to rush you, but I also don't want to take up your entire Friday yeah. afternoon. Sure. Uh, so, when you say who is on your team, yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. You know, obviously you're going to have the principal stakeholders, but I assume that there's a more complex analysis to it. Yeah. So when we think about the the team to get the process started, um, most firms will engage a, a real estate advisor like ourselves um, as sort of the, the, the quarterback of the process. Um, I use the quarterback analogy. If anyone who knows me well listens to this, they'll laugh because I don't really know much at all about sports. But <laughs> they'll look to us to really quarterback the process and really be the single point of contact uh, and accountability throughout the whole process. There are um, two other uh, important team members we'll bring into the fold right away. Um, the first is an architect. Um, an architect is going to help our clients really understand um, uh, uh, what their space needs are, um, and it could be um, the size of the space, what will go into the space. Once we start evaluating buildings, an architect will help us show kind of how they lay out in each space, which is really mm -hmm. important because you might lay out and need more space in one building versus another based on how the building is designed, et cetera. Um, so that's a very important partner. Um, one <clears throat> sort of uh, side connector to architecture is what we call workplace strategy. So CBRE has a workplace strategy group, which will get engaged um, before we start looking at buildings and really getting engaged with an architect. They'll study more about how someone is using space. Um, and so an example um, would be, uh, it, the simplest way is, uh, you know, how often does someone come into an office, right? It's an easy question to answer. You can look at now, you know, key card data, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, within the office, what are sort of the, the, the processes and the flows of information and communication, which groups are really interacting with others more or less, right? Um, there's a lot of data that can go into studying how is someone using space now? How will they use it in the future? Um, a topic right now is you know um, remote working, right? How much of an organization's culture is going to be in the office versus out of the office? That certainly impacts not only office space, but more importantly, management, because it all comes back to business strategy, right? If you hire 10 people, how many will come to the place of work every day and how many will work from home, right? What technology supports that, right? How are people then being mentored if they're never in the office? All those types of questions, right? So that closely ties in with architecture. So is that, sorry to cut you off, is that the group that drove sort of the new, the format of your new offices? So I guess they're a couple of years old now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, for those who haven't seen CBRE's office, it's really cool. It's really different and interesting. Um, why don't you take a minute just to explain sure. your office? Because it is unique. Yeah, it is unique. And I can't take credit for it. I, 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 I benefit from it because I love our offices. So um, probably six, seven years ago, CBRE uh, globally decided that they wanted to create um, a uh, consistent workplace environment across the globe. Um, and um, one of the decisions that they made is that we would go free addressing, uh, which means no one has a dedicated seat. Um, there are lots of offices in our space. It's not a cube farm, um, but uh, no one has a dedicated space. 
which means that you can then take less space because when you look at the data, and it's different from city to city or business group to business group, when you look at the data, utilization percentages in most offices are much lower than people perceive them to be. Mm-hmm. The data we show is that if you ask most people how often are you in the office, they say 80%, it's probably more like 60%. If someone's in sales, it could be much, much lower, right? Certain functions, they're here every single day and they're only not here if they're on vacation or sick, right? But 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 when you look at the, at the blended kind of average data, people are just not in the office a lot. And so CBRE said, no one's gonna have a dedicated seat, but we're gonna end up taking a little bit less space but we're gonna take the savings that we're generating from taking less space, in other words, less rent every year, um, and we're gonna reinvest it into the space and in our people. And so what does that mean? Um, it means um, um, really high touch design of our offices, really, really well done. It means best in class technology so that you can work anywhere within the office and easily plug in and have everything on a screen or have your internet be good or have access to whatever files you need, right? Um, It means uh, creating uh, lots of dynamic spaces to host lots of events because as as an employee at CBRE, then I benefit because I can host a board meeting there, right? Or I can host uh, a cocktail hour there or a thought leadership event there, whatever it is. So really trying to give employees more. And then a lot of it too is around the functionality of the space. So um, when you walk into our reception, uh, the receptionists that will greet you um, are actually an outsourced concierge service. So we said, who are experts in hospitality? Let's go hire them and let's bring them into the fold so that our clients, when they come into the office, they experience a whole different level of kind of high touch relationship and hospitality. And then that that falls through to, to how we can use our concierge services, whether it's me setting up a lunch or whether it's me getting tickets to bring my wife out for our anniversary or me setting up a trip, whatever it is, it's really high touch. And a lot of it is, is the strategy of taking less space then allowed us to monetize in other areas. And so, so just the idea that someone will or not have a dedicated seat, that is a business decision that if it's not made from a strategy perspective before you engage a planner, right, um, then you're gonna miss a lot of opportunities. Uh, and that's totally then separate from people working at home. Right, uh, so so technology is the driver. Technology is everything. We can do this because um, technology now allows us to work from anywhere. Right, thirty years ago you couldn't do it, and now um, the, even the way that we're interacting with clients. You know, think about video conferencing now and how prevalent right. it is. Right. Five years from now, we'll look back at today and we'll laugh at the idea of a conference call because everything is moving to video. Right, so if everything's moving to video and it's all global, you need a lot more spaces within your office to accommodate for that. Traditionally, there was one room with this $200,000 video camera, right? It was all cumbersome to use. Now, everybody can just video chat from their laptop. Yeah. You know, we use Zoom. You hop on Zoom and snap of a finger, you're talking to 12 people around the world, and anybody, even someone who's not technologically savvy, can join it without a problem. So that's really changing the, the design and, and the strategy of office space. Fantastic. That was a good digression. I think yeah. it's, if people have friends or that work at CBRE, it's worth checking out their office. Just to, seeing it is, it, you know, it's interesting to hear about, but seeing it is really uh, something you should you should take a little bit of time to do. Um, talk to little about your team. Is there any other important team members you want to touch on? Yeah, so the, so the real estate advisor, the workplace strategist and architect, and then the third is the project manager. And the project manager... It's really sort of the construction manager um, that once we know what the eventual project is, all of the uh, groups that are working to design and build and move into the space will funnel up to the project manager. So the project manager is really responsible for two things, the schedule and the budget from a construction standpoint. And so the architect, the general contractor, the furniture vendors, the IT vendors, the um, security, AV, everyone will roll up to that project manager um, so that in the same way that the client would look to the real estate advisor to run the process, they could look to that one project manager to be accountable to delivery of the actual construction project. So uh, to kick off the process, we like to have those groups engaged because the architect, workplace strategist, and then the project manager are important to me as an advisor to help put together budgets so that I know in option A, B, C, and D, what will it cost and what will the schedule be? And I need to rely on those other partners 
in order to help my client make a decision. Once they make a decision, then we really start to roll up our sleeves um, to engage the other partners like the engineers and furniture vendors, et cetera. Well, that's also a great segue into five and six. You know, the question is five and six is what is your schedule and what is your budget? There we go. So, uh, it all ties together. And um, I do think it's interesting that what is your budget is the sixth question. It's not necessarily the first question. Obviously, it is something that a business has to be aware of, um, but I think that it, it's really a thoughtful process to think about all of the, your, your deficiencies, your success factors, your, what are the different scenarios uh, before you sort of get to the budget in order to understand the vision of the company because people might make bad decisions, either high or low. They might, yeah. they might budget too low and suffocate some component of their business. Right. Or they might go too high and right. over over leverage their their liabilities over their revenue, and um, so why don't you talk a little bit about now that we we have the team together and uh, we understand what we want to do, how you look at the uh, the schedule and the budget? Great. So the schedule largely is driven by the size of the project. So you know, last week we got a call from a, a startup that just got a round of funding and um, they need to grow quickly. Um, they need to be in space very fast because they need to hire a lot of people. But it's a small enough project where you can pull it off in a few months, right? Um, they don't want to spend a lot of money on the space. They don't want to sign a long-term lease. They don't want to be in a co-working, think of like a WeWork. They, they want their own yeah. their own space. And so, so we could do that in a few months, right? So long as they make decisions quickly, you don't have to pull a permit, no construction. For a larger project, however, if, if they're really going to study some of the other dynamics that we've talked about, labor analytics, right? How big is it going to be? And it takes a while to understand where are you going to hire people, right? And what are those costs? If they really want to understand, you know, are there any uh, incentives that specific municipalities or states are, are asking for? Um, uh, if there's, you know, large potential opportunities for M&A in the future that could impact their final uh, scenario, right? They let those play out. So if, they're, if they could potentially build their own building, right? Or anchor a large new building. I mean, in the city of Chicago, um, from start to finish, it could easily easily take three years to develop a large tower. And so if you are going to be an anchor tenant in a large tower, you can't exactly start that three months before, right? So a lot of it is driven by size. Um, however, sometimes tenants large or small, if they're in an existing lease, right? Um, even if they have several years remaining on their lease, they can begin the process. The, a mistake that, that a lot of people make is, is they let um, their lease expiration drive their decision making, which again is backwards. If there's a business need, right, then we might be able to solve for it even in the middle of a lease. Right. It could be as simple as renegotiating the lease. You might not take more or less space, but there could be an opportunity to reduce the rental rate. Well, if that aligns with what you're trying to do in the business, let's see if we can do that. So that might also impact the schedule. Yeah. No, there's yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. And then do you want to talk about uh, the budget a little bit? Yeah. So the budget, we really think uh, break it that into two different parts. The first part is is what are your your ongoing costs, which are going to be more rent related, right? You have your base rent, you have your taxes, and operating expenses. There's all sorts of ways that a, a lease can be structured, as you're well aware of whether that's all clumped in into the the rental rate. We call that a gross lease. Um, or whether you pay your base rent and then you pay your pro rata share of the taxes and operating expenses. So we want to make sure our clients understand how that's all structured and how it compares to what they're paying today. That's sort of the, the ongoing costs. Right now in the city of Chicago, we're seeing real estate taxes increase at a rate that we've never seen before. And so a lot of it is prepping our clients for what that could mean, right? It's prop, proper budgeting. Certain things you can't control, but some things you can be more conservative on, right? Um, and then the second bucket are what we call one-time costs, which um, deal with what are the costs in order to open up first day of business, right? And so, um, so that is managed by, typically on a large project, the project manager, and it's everything from the construction costs to the architecture fees, to the engineering fees, to the security, to the furniture, um, to- Don't forget legal. Legal, move, <laughs> no, I'm glad you brought that up, to legal. Um, I, I, was, I had a, a call with a client this morning and they were trying to determine whether or not they wanted to do a small sublease. 
And I said, it's really important you also understand what your legal fees would be, right? Because if that's not taken into account as an overall you know, part of the deal, right? Um, you might wish that you had done or you hadn't done it. So I'm glad you brought that up, legal fees. Yeah. Um, which I know you always keep as low as humanly possible. You have to. You have, you have to. to. You have to take a long-term view. Long-term view, yeah. So it's all those costs that go into the one-time costs. And if you mess up the one-time costs, there's initial pain, right? People are really upset because it throws off the annual budget. You mess up the ongoing costs, there's annual pain, right? <laughs> right? And so we have you know, a dedicated team of financial analysts that are all MBAs and brilliant minds, and, and we are, um, we're giving them the right data for them to put together an analysis. And a lot of what I'm doing is sitting down with executives and CFOs and, and VPs of finance and board members to make sure that they understand the implications of, um, of really what it means, not only just on an ca- ongoing cash basis, but also what's the profit and loss you know, impact because you know most companies will straight line rent over the term, right? As opposed to just looking on a cash basis, and there's all sorts of different you know accounting implications now as as leases are being accounted for differently from FASB. So we get into all those weeds, and and before we really um, start the process to start looking at space, we want to make sure that conceptually they understand those components, and that um, and that they understand kind of how our model works, so that we can work with their finance team to, to, to make sure that we're, we're speaking the same language and that there's not going to be any confusion later on. Fantastic. So, mean, this, is, this is a great, this is a great, great series of questions. And uh, I really like how you, you tie it all together to think through the process. Well, thank you. You know, the, the goal of the book um, is, that, uh, is that someone can read it in about an hour. I'm a slow reader. I'm probably more like hour and 15 actually. minutes. Yeah. I've always been a slow reader. As a kid, I hated, I hated the test where you had to read a paragraph and then answer questions. I never got through it fast enough. Yeah. Anyway. Great read, retention, though, I'll bet. <laughs> good retention once I read it. Yeah. Um, so you get through it an hour. And then um, and throughout the book, I have pages where you can kind of take notes and write down what are your goals, you know, what are your, your, your challenges, et cetera, or the different scenarios. So that by the end of the hour... Um, you are prepared to have a conversation with your executive team. So if you're the CEO, you can then have the conversation with your COO or your CFO, right? If you are the uh, facilities manager, you can have the conversation with the CEO and the CFO, right? If you're the managing partner of a law firm, right? You can pull your executive committee, you know, in along with your, your executive director, who's ever kind of running the business. And so it purposely won't answer every single question, but our clients are so busy they don't need the answer to every single question. They need to know how do I get started and then how do I bring in the right people to help me run the project. So really, it's an hour's worth of time to really uh, have the reader educate themselves and also increase their confidence. So much of what we do is is based on confidence and relationships. And if we have confidence in what we're doing, we're able to then bring those to our relationships and strengthen the confidence that other people have in us so that as a group, we can then move forward toward what the ultimate solution is. I think that's right. I see people all the time that need legal counsel, they need to engage an attorney for a project, but they don't have the confidence to figure out how to approach it or mm-hmm. how to select an attorney or mm-hmm. how to talk to their attorney about what what they want, whether and, and a lot of it has to do with confidence as to what they're seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one last topic that I want to talk to you about. Sure. It's a quick one, but I couldn't let you out of here without talking about your album. Oh. So um so ever since I was in college, I wrote music. Um, it would it would honestly just happen. I'd be walking down the street, I would hear a melody in my head, and uh, and I I you know get out probably at the time it was my flip phone, get out my yeah. flip phone and see if there's a little recorder in it, you know, and then over time that turned into music, and um, and so a few years ago, probably four years ago, my wife Melissa said, you know, John, it's time for you to record your music. And I'm um, talking about confidence. Um, I didn't have the confidence to do it. I thought music's not good. People are never going to listen to it. I don't have the time. I don't know how to record it. How am I going to pay for it? I had no idea. And she encouraged me. She said, you should record your music. I said, you know what, honey, you're right. And, uh, and so over the next probably 18 months, I told several people um, about my idea and said, I'm looking for someone to help me do it. And I finally found this gentleman who's a part-time pharmacist and a full-time musician and producer, and he's an absolute technology whiz. 
And so we had a lot of fun for about five months. I went into his studio here in Chicago every Saturday for four or five hours. We recorded. Um, we then brought in you know other other musicians and. Um, and uh, we ended up recording 10 songs. And after we recorded it all, um, so it was right when my, when my first child was born, my son was born. So I had to put it on hold yeah. for a little bit. And then you know, we went through the editing process and he'd send me the songs. And I have a very critical ear. I can sort of be really anal about things. And he probably got annoyed with me because I kept changing it and changing it and changing it. And got to the point where we thought the music was really good and then um, ended up uh, you know, releasing it. Uh, and it's available really uh, on any streaming service. Um, uh, other than Pandora, you can buy it. Just look under my name, John Malonis. Album's called Harmonies of Hope. Um, the album was named uh, 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 after a really challenging experience that my wife and I had trying to have a kid, and, and um, it's very hard for us through infertility, and, and we lost a child through miscarriage. And and um, I ended up writing a song called Harmonies of Hope is really sort of my way of working through that that process. And and so that's one of the songs on the album. And then, uh, then last I year- to that. We, we went through the exact same thing. I mean, it probably wasn't the exact same, but fertility issues, lost a child. Yeah. So I'll listen to that song. Well, th- thank you. I, it, um, so many people go through that and a few people talk about it and i had a couple people when we were going through it that really you know encouraged me to to talk about it and and it sort of just showed up in a song one day yeah right that's great right so so it was a lot of fun and last year i rented out a, a really fun venue called entitled in river north yeah, right that sort of looks it was designed as a 1920s speakeasy sort of and um and so I had a couple hundred people there and, and uh, got the band together and played a show. And, and you know, I, I believe that everyone is creative um, and it, it shows up in different ways. And, uh, and so I'm very glad that Melissa pushed me to do it. I had a lot of fun and, um, and I can't wait to do it again. That's awesome. I, that's why I wanted to, you to talk about it because we've talked about creativity a little bit in the past. And, and I want to share these stories of people using their creativity even when they have kids, they have full-time jobs. Uh, because writing a book, whether you're using your creativity to be an author or I had a similar experience, if I'd be so bold to compare us, uh, I, I love podcasts and I couldn't find a podcast talking about commercial real estate. So I was like, you know, you should just do it. And I was like, I, no one wants to hear me talk about commercial real estate. And they're right. So that's why I ask people questions <laughs> so that they can talk about commercial right, real estate. Right. But uh, it's, it's like, I don't know how to create one. I don't know how to figure one out. And so... You know, you just start solving the problem one step at a time. All right, I guess I need some microphones. There we go. So you start listing it out. So yeah, well, I'm I'm a, a strong believer in the law of attraction, right? I think it, just like gravity, it's a reality that that um, that whatever you uh, sort of put out comes back, right? If you're a jerk to people, people are probably more likely to be a jerk to you. And um, as I began to tell people what I wanted to do, I was overwhelmed by the support that I got from people. You should talk to so-and-so. Oh, that's great, it increased my confidence. And then, you know, much like looking at office space, you look at 10 spaces and you find one. I had to talk to 10 people to find Danny who's gonna help me produce it, right? And you just kinda, it's all iterative. You try it, you tweak, you try it, you tweak, and you know, kudos to you for the successful podcast that you've put together. And um, and I'm sure that now your process is far more streamlined than it was the first time, as it should Much. be, right? Because you learn from it, but the value that you're bringing to your audience um, really is incredibly powerful, right? And at the end of the day, you know, my, my, um, I feel like my, my mission in life is really to enrich people. And, um, and I want to enrich people and then I want to, you know, enrich at a sort of a systemic, you know, organizational level. I want to enrich organizations. And the only way for me to do that is for me to get over my lack of confidence, which I have in lots of areas, and to be bold and to step out and, uh, and to show my true authentic self, whether it's in a relationship or it's in writing, it's in music. And the more I do that and the more that I show um, what I consider to be a really important value, which is vulnerability, of who I am, then before I know it, it just incredible things come back, incredible stories of people and incredible ways to connect. And it sort of comes back to one of the uh, earlier conversations we had, um, you know, around, around confidence in relationships. At the end of the day, you know, what matters most is relationships. And so whatever I can do to help uh, lead myself into more uh, authentic relationships and encourage other people to do it, I could sleep better at night.
Thanks for coming on the show, John. I, I feel like we buried the lead a little bit. I think we got to the, the best stuff right there at the end. Uh, but no, no disrespect to your office lease. So, John, thank you very much for coming on the show. If anyone wants to get, how can they, people get in touch with you? Great. So um, visit my website at johnmalonis.com, J-O-N-M-I-L-O-N-A-S.com. And it has all my contact information and you can learn more about me, my work, my family, our community involvement, which we didn't get a chance to to talk about, but it's very important to us, um, music, et cetera. We'll, we'll leave some meat on that bone for the next one. <laughs> if you'll have me back. Right. Thanks a lot, John. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice, and no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.